0: You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything else. Today on the show, notorious hucksters and flimflam artists.
1: Life, the Universe, and Everything Else explores issues of science, critical thinking, and secular humanism. If you have questions or comments about the show, or you'd like to suggest a topic, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook, or send us an email at lueepodcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes and references can be found at lueepodcast.com. I'm
0: your host, Lauren Bailey, and with me today I have Ashlyn Noble. Hello. And Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. We also welcome back Jim Newman from his well-deserved sabbatical. Hello. Over the years here at L-U-E-E, we've talked about some con artists, from the Food Babe and David Avocado Wolf, who preached some dangerous lies about health and nutrition, to big dogs like Hubbard, who created a family-destroying religion to make money. <laughs> On this episode, we take a look at some of the other more recognized names in the parting folks from their money racket. Let's get things off to an electrifying start. Jem, tell us about Albert Abrams.
1: <laughs> well, I don't know if he's exactly a household name anymore, but uh, he was certainly a popular target for skeptics, oh, a hundred years ago. The use of magnetic fields in medicine has a long history. In antiquity, lodestones were used by healers such, such as Thales of Miletus. And in the Middle Ages, they were used uh, as an aphrodisiac and to treat uh, baldness. I don't Ooh. know if those two were related, maybe. I <laughs> you know, thought more hair, you might be more, I don't know. Um, it's an age thing. Yeah. Theophrastus von Hoppenheim, better known.
2: <laughs> I'm sorry, is that a real name? Because that does not sound legitimate. <laughs>
1: well, you wouldn't name your kid Theophrastus? You named your kid Huxley. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, Theophrastus von Hoppenheim. Uh, sorry, von Hohenheim.
3: That's like a really bad fantasy
2: name. Yeah. <laughs> exactly! That's why I had to ask.
1: So, von Hohenheim was better known as Paracelsus, or Paracelsus. I want to say Paracelsus because it's Latin, and you always have the hard C in mm-hmm. Latin. I mean, traditionally, but, you know, people say Paracelsus these days. Anyway, uh, you've missed me, haven't you,
0: listener?
3: I
2: was <laughs> to interrupt to say that. <laughs>
3: This is the essence of our
1: show. (laughs) Uh, Paracelsus, who is hailed as the father of toxicology, promoted the use of magnets to push and pull diseases such as epilepsy out of the body. Is that how they work? Uh, No. Um, (laughs) In the late 18th century, as scientists were exploring the relationship between electricity and magnetism, Franz Mesmer popularized the use of electromagnetic fields for medical purposes. Mesmer, of course, is the namesake of the verb To mesmerize. He also is the originator of animal magnetism, though he used the phrase to describe a life force analogous to Ki or Hahnemann's innate intelligence. Uh, While today the meaning has, of course, shifted to describe simple charisma instead of uh, mesmer's vitalistic philosophy. As North American cities embarked on the process of electrification at the turn of the 20th century, electromagnetic devices were increasingly embraced by snake oil salesmen uh, who patented electrical machines designed to diagnose and cure pretty much any ailment. Thomas Edison's New Jersey laboratory was actually the site of several experiments investigating whether and to what degree electromagnetic fields could affect physiological systems in a therapeutic context. Upon examining data gleaned from a series of circulatory, cellular, neurological, and respiratory studies, investigators could find no support for any sort of electromagnetic therapy. The quacks, of course, were hardly dissuaded. At the forefront of this revolution in patent medicine was American physician Albert Abrams, inventor of the oscilloclast, the radioclast, and the dynamizer.
0: (laughs)
3: Ooh, these are fancy words.
1: (laughs) Unlike some peddlers of pseudoscience, but... Like some others—I'm looking at you, Dr. Oz—Abrams had actual medical training. Indeed, he was a respected medical doctor, studying at both the University of Heidelberg in Germany and at the Medical College of the Pacific, which later became Cooper College and later still became Stanford University School of Medicine. He rose to vice president of the California State Medical Society and became president of the San Francisco medico Chirurgical Society in 1893. At the turn of the 20th century, science-based medicine still had a long way to go. Speaking of which, have any of you seen The Nick?
0: Yes. I've
3: seen the first few episodes of it.
1: It is pretty hard to watch at times, but it is engrossing.
2: Oh, it's fantastic. I love it.
0: Max Headroom with a beard. (laughs) Yeah.
2: No.
1: Okay. Back on track. Uh, Dr. Abrams was a harsh critic of many of his contemporaries with regard to science-based medicine, not only ridiculing their dubious treatments, but apparently going so far as to compare their physical appearance to that of bacteria. Not a nice man. Abrams himself, as you might have guessed, given that he is the subject of a segment in an episode about flim-flam uh, and con artists— was hardly a paragon of scientific rigor. Uh, A technique that he developed called spondylotherapy (laughs) uh, attempted to trigger organ reflexes by percussing the spine and was based on the practice of chiropractic. Uh, But Abrams is best remembered today, uh, when he's remembered at all, uh, for his claim that electrons were the basic element of life, and that this electric life force was best manipulated using one of his patented medical devices. I I mean, that's an interesting theory for the time— Uh, It is indeed. He claimed that health was defined by the presence of certain energy frequencies moving through the body, and that unhealthy people will exhibit certain disordered frequencies corresponding to their particular malady. When a person's discordant electromagnetic frequency was brought back into balance, their illness would thereby be cured. And wouldn't you know it, he had patented a device that would do just that.
0: So, electric humors.
1: (laughs) I was going to ask if any of this sounds familiar.
0: Yeah.
1: Do you guys remember Ashlyn's segment on the (laughs) Physiospect?
3: Yes. What a fancy machine.
1: (laughs) Abrams patented not just one... Not two, not three, but 13 different devices over the course of his life, amassing millions of dollars in licensing and leasing fees, and leading the American Medical Association to describe him as the dean of gadget quacks. (laughs) Abrams claimed that his devices were so sensitive that they would allow him to determine a man's personality traits and even diagnose a man's religion using a single drop of blood. (laughs) What? <laughs> According to The New Medical Follies, which is a book published in 1927, here's how the process worked in a nutshell. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to summarize here. Abrams would obtain some blood from a patient. Apparently it was common for him to receive envelopes of bloody paper by post. Oh <laughs> and this blood would then be attached to the dynamizer, a machine that is described as looking like an antique radio. Have you seen an antique radio? For our listeners who haven't, there were large, you know, wooden boxes, essentially, that that stood on the ground and were about, you know, five feet, four or five feet high. So Abrams claimed that if blood were unavailable to be attached to the dynamizer, a handwriting sample would do, which is such obvious charlatanry that it's almost delightful.
0: What if you wrote in your own blood and sent it to him?
1: Well, then you could double diagnosis. (laughs) Um, After the sample was attached to the dynamizer, Abrams would string wires, uh, daisy-chaining the dynamizer to a series of other machines of unknown and equally dubious use, until he finally uh, wired the last machine to the forehead of a healthy volunteer, who was, and I'm uh, quoting from the New Medical Follies here, facing west in dim light. (laughs) <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure how relevant Dudely the... yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Abrams would then percuss the abdomen of this volunteer in search of dullness, whatever that means, uh, I'm sure it's a legitimate medical term, allowing him to diagnose disease in the original patient by proxy. <laughs> After obtaining a diagnosis in this manner, Abrams, or another licensed practitioner, could then use the oscilloclast to bathe the patient in healing frequencies. Now here, uh, you might say... Hold on. Abrams is claiming that certain frequencies are responsible for disorders and also for cures. Shouldn't this make it really easy to verify his claims or falsify them, as the case may be, and uh, as the case certainly was here? Not so fast. It turns out that when Abrams said frequency, he wasn't necessarily meaning uh, in the standard sense, that is, the number of peaks per second in an electromagnetic wave. Uh, But instead, he was describing some different form of energy entirely, presumably one that could be detected by his instruments and no one else's. So like frequency resonance of being? Resonance beings of frequency. No, see, see, that was talking about EM frequencies, I think, usually. (laughs) Uh, Investigating these devices was difficult, as those who had access to them were contractually forbidden from opening them.
3: Oh, uh, boy. It's a, like
1: an iPhone. According to Abrams, yeah, would void the warranty. Uh, this was apparently to prevent a practitioner or a patient from disrupting the delicate adjustment of the device, which seems entirely plausible and is exactly what I tell my patients before I sell them a box of loose gears and call it Newman's Electro-Turbo-Ociloprobe, now with blockchain integration.
0: Newman's own. <laughs> yes.
1: Well, I, I, I think I might get into, uh, into trouble with the Paul Newman estate if I, mm-hmm. if I called it Newman's mm-hmm. own, but... Uh, Uh, Anyway Reminds
3: me of those um, What were they Golf ball returners That they were selling As bomb detectors Yep In in Iraq Yeah Damn Uh, thing But don't open them
1: Yeah that guy uh, Went to jail Yeah Only briefly I think I think he's out now But yeah CEO of a UK company That was selling these As bomb detectors In the Middle East And uh, yeah Lots of people were dying Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, a course of treatment with uh, Abrams devices would cost about $200, uh, which is the equivalent of about $3,000 today. And Abrams would lease these machines out to independent operators for $200 up front and uh, $5 a month thereafter. So he was raking in the cash. Patients were informed that, armed with the acyloclast and its trusted table of curative frequencies, a practitioner could treat a range of diseases, such as cancer, diabetes, syphilis, and even the dreaded bovine syphilis, which was previously (laughs) unknown to medical practitioners, and indeed remains unknown to medical practitioners to this very day. Abrams would tell patients that the acyloclast would cure most diseases most of the time, but these cures often required several courses of treatment. As I said earlier, he had studied under uh, chiropractors yeah, <laughs> yeah. By the early 1920s, thousands of American practitioners were using Abrams' technology. While the AMA was skeptical, to say the least, Abrams was defended by Sherlock Holmes' creator and noted believer in fairies, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, for whom no swindle was too obvious to be believed. A member of the American Medical Association sent a blood sample to one of Abrams' practitioners, uh, asking for a diagnosis, and the practitioner immediately diagnosed the patient with diabetes, cancer, syphilis, and malaria. This patient, it turned out, was a Plymouth Rock rooster. A very sick rooster. Yeah, (laughs) a a rooster that gets around. Uh, Scientific American magazine was determined to take Abrams down. Uh, They contacted one of Abrams' practitioners who was eager to demonstrate the accuracy of Abrams' machines and worked uh, with a team from Siam to test the machine's abilities. The Scientific American team presented the practitioner with six vials, each containing a different pathogen, and asked him to identify the pathogens. The practitioner eagerly did so, and failed to name a single pathogen correctly. Uh, When they revealed This information The practitioner Of course admitted his error And disavowed The entire affair (laughs) I'm I'm just kidding Uh, The practitioner Pointed out That the vials Were labeled in red And red ink Was known To produce vibrations That confounded Abrams' instruments (laughs) The investigators uh, Dutifully Relabeled the vials (laughs) And again The practitioner Failed to identify Their contents After the results Of this investigation Were published In Scientific American Abrams protested Insisting that he would be happy to cooperate with the investigation and prove the efficacy of his devices. However, despite repeated overtures from Siam, Abrams was always ready with some excuse that prevented him from participating, while complaining in his own publications that he was subject to persecution by the scientific establishment. Of course. While he personally was never brought up on charges, a few of Abrams' disciples found themselves in court. At the time of his death in 1924, Albert Abrams was scheduled to appear as a witness in a case involving one of his practitioners who'd been charged with fraud. Abrams died uh, before he could appear, but he died a multimillionaire. Mm. After his death... FDA investigators opened a few of Abrams' devices, finding that one was a low-powered radio transmitter, while another produced a small magnetic field, uh, which is described as akin to that you might uh, get from a doorbell. In his 1950 book Searchlight on Psychical Research, magician and skeptic Joseph Rinn describes the opening of one of Abrams' oscilloclasts in 1927. Quote, This wonder box, when opened, was found to contain a small motor hooked up to an electric battery that made a purring noise. Nothing else.
0: So for medicine, we head now to beauty. Laura, for this episode I really wanted to do a
2: female con artist because Thank we you. all know many many stories of of male con artists and flimflam artists out there. So I thought, well, let's let's see what history has to offer in terms of female cons because of course, we are just as clever as everybody else. So now, there were actually quite a few interesting ones to choose from. There were multiple stories of lost princesses that mm-hmm. conned their way into riches and protection. Anastasia. How many of them were 132nd Cherokee? Um, No, a lot of them were just claiming to be of different European backgrounds and such. There was even a similar type of thing where a Canadian was claiming to be a lost uh, Carnegie daughter. Oh, I heard about that one. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's like the North America's version of that. So there was a few. There's also a really great one, the story of the woman who would... Travel around with a trunk full of riches and ask for a safe stay at people's houses for the night. And mysteriously, every morning, the trunk and all of their
0: riches would be gone as well. So, the Nigerian prince email scheme.
2: Uh, it's kind of like that, except no, she traveled with a little person in the trunk, and the little person would go and steal the riches and put it in the trunk, and then they no. would leave people's houses.
1: Oh my, oh, my goodness. That's <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> an unexpected layer. <laughs> yeah, that is a too-good-to-be-true story. That is something you'd see in, like, a cheap, like, 80s fantasy movie.
2: <laughs> and now you know where they got it from, because yeah. <laughs> it happened. But as Lauren said, I'm actually going to talk about a beautician's. The woman I settled on is someone named Sarah Rachel Russell, and a lot of people are probably not familiar with this person. Although she did go by another name of Madame Russell, so perhaps if you're into Victorian history, you might have heard of her. So as I mentioned, she was uh, around in London in uh, the late 19th century. She was born in approximately 1814, but she made her name in the 1860s and 70s or so, and she was born to Jewish parents of a theatrical background, apparently, performers of some kind, though her story, her background was a lot more inflated and related to royalty and nobility uh, the way that she told it as she went on. So she had a couple of husbands, one of whom was of an apothecary or an apothecary's assistant. She had several professions, uh, such as selling used clothes. She ran a chip shop or a fish shop, rather at some point, and she did some extortion and soliciting and racketeering, and eventually she settled on a beautician as her as her profession. She opened a beauty a racket shop. racket of choice? <laughs> yeah. Everybody's so, got their talents. She ran a salon that was very popular among uh, noble women in London at the time, and she sold numerous preparations that would guarantee everlasting youth, and she used this in her advertising. So she put out this... Pamphlet called Beautiful Forever advertising her products. And there were all sorts of things uh, like Jordan River water (laughs) and Arabian something or other. And one of her very famous ones was the magnetic rock dew water from the Sahara Desert. So, of course, all of these things, she sold these to women with the promise that. It would be that fountain of youth type of thing, stop the aging process, make them beautiful and fair, and all of those things that uh, women of that time would be looking for.
3: The slogan, beautiful forever, makes me think of like the tagline of a zombie movie where (laughs) people die but stay like outwardly beautiful but they just sort of shrink into themselves. (laughs) Forever.
2: Umbrella Corp. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. As you can guess, these potions that claimed the guaranteed to make women younger looking and more beautiful and that obviously didn't work were they very full well of arsenic Yes they Yay! were definitely <laughs> full of arsenic uh, as well as prussic acid and a bunch of other very caustic chemicals Does that would
0: make your skin feel tight and
2: Yeah yeah so they did they did some things but they definitely weren't good for you But like this um, wasn't the scam because this was like the standard of care at the time Well You know, and see, this is the thing, like, she's, some reports will say that she's one of the people up there that started that, that beauty snake oil type unrealistic promises Mm -hmm. thing that we, you know, for us today, we just kind of expect, oh yeah, everything will get rid of wrinkles, right? Right. But that was something, she was really big on pushing this, and she would take out ads in all the big magazines and, and that of the time. So, so she was known for all of these huge claims, right? Um, so the, the bigger the claim, the more it would draw people in. And of course, people were skeptical too, but they, would, they really wanted this. And, and so her, her very famous magnetic rock dew water was nothing more than water with wheat bran in it. Yeah. Um, but women were paying the equivalent of
0: several hundred dollars. Well, at the all, time it was all of the water from the sahara so of course exactly
2: she was. <laughs> exactly you know and and she labeled everything that she had the exclusive rights to things so of course this is something that that people would want so um yeah her treatments uh, were likened to early chemical peels in a lot of ways So, they obviously didn't do what they said they were going to do. But that's not all that she did. So, she did run a spa for her patrons as well. Because you can't just sell lotions, right? Just have them in for an all-day treatment, So, of course, this spa wasn't just a spa. One of the things that she did at her spa was rent rooms out to people to do whatever and take a little bit extra to make sure that she didn't say anything about what was going on in those rooms. So there was definitely some subtle and overt blackmail and extortion going on in her premises there. And this is really where she makes a name for herself. So there was that subtle blackmail, but then there was an overt extortion. So frequently she would lure in widows or spinsters and with promises of beauty, knowing that they were desperate for husbands, and then claim that she knew particular noble people, particularly this one Lord Renelaf, I believe is how you pronounce it, um, who of course does not exist. And she would arrange marriages, but state that the women needed to... ...put up X amount of money... ...and basically bilk them out of all of their money... ...and she would do this multiple times... ...and occasionally she would get... ...just a a stand-in guy... ...from the theaters nearby... ...to come in and pose as this lord... ...so that the women could meet him... Um, ...and this was actually... That's the, where the
1: Nigerian prince comes in... <laughs> exactly,
2: exactly... ...and this was ultimately the downfall... ...because she was raking in millions at mm-hmm. the time... ...she was sending her children... ...she had seven children... ...she was sending them to medical school in Paris for example, with this scheme there. But one of the clients who was blackmailed was the one who finally went to the police about her. Because most of the women would be too embarrassed. They would be too embarrassed. And this is the thing, because you would think, well, these women, they're being charged exorbitant amounts of money for treatments that are doing nothing. And they're going back over and over again. Why aren't they going to the police? She would also take their jewels as collateral for oh, treatments boy. and then the jewels would vanish while they were in the spa but the these noble women weren't going to the police the reason for that is because it wasn't until 1882 when women in England their property did not automatically become transferred to their husband mm-hmm. upon marriage so before 1882 anything that the woman owned then belonged to the husband. So if they wanted these spa treatments, they were spending their husband's money without his consent, so they couldn't say that they were actually doing this. Now, why would you hide these spa treatments? Well... This was Victorian England, and Queen Victoria thought that makeup and spa treatments was for prostitutes and actresses, both of whom were very low in the societal ladder. And so, noble women, of course, wanting to be like the Queen, couldn't admit that they were using these types of treatments. Mm-hmm. So, this just made it really easy for <laughs> Madame Russell to really extort all of these women and and make millions upon millions of pounds from it. And it was interesting, it's actually, uh, it wasn't until her trials where it came out how much money London women were spending on cosmetic treatments at the time, and how frequent this practice actually was everybody was sort of living in this world of oh no she just never ages <laughs> yeah. um, oh her jewels just keep disappearing <laughs> and then um you know it kind of finally came out that yeah actually women are using these things all of the time so that is sarah rachel russell or Madame rachel as she was known a uh, extortionist beautician that's awesome that yeah, pretty amazing. Yeah. I after reading her story, I'm just like, yeah, I I need to tell this story because mm. it's pretty good. Things that happen in the Victorian era always have a a fun little twist to <laughs> them. And reading some accounts from the London Times at that time, oh, the writing is just lovely. Oh. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. fantastic. <laughs> you know, it's you're thinking this was a newspaper, but it sounds like a storybook.
0: <laughs> yep, I love those. <laughs> Is everyone familiar with the not-so-secret secret secret of The Secret? That if you wish for things, nothing happens? Yeah. Yeah,
1: we're talking Rhonda Byrne. Yeah. Yeah. Rhonda Byrne, yeah. yeah, You you, you put it out in the universe. (laughs) And and the universe
2: doesn't care.
1: (laughs) Exactly.
0: Rhonda Byrne obviously wasn't the first to come up with the idea to put this information out. That's one of the principal tenets of Phineas Quimby's New Thought movement. Quimby's most famous disciple was, of course...
3: Mayor Quimby. (laughs) <laughs> Not
0: <quite. laughs> Mary Baker Eddy, the founder of the Christian Science Movement. Oh,
1: yeah, 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 ah. yeah, yeah.
0: So New Thought is also quite present in the modern prosperity gospel type of churches. Mm-hmm. And another follower of Quimby was a man who I hadn't heard of until researching this topic, but now I have this unholy fascination with. His name is Napoleon Hill. When I read this article about him, this is when I said, we should do a show about flim-flam artists. Yay. So yeah. thanks, Nap. His family called him Nap. For Napoleon <laughs>
3: You're attributing this show to having a snooze?
0: (laughs) Yes. Napoleon Hill was the first to take the self-help book to an enduring international fad. Even today, there's still the Napoleon Hill Foundation, which is spreading the sanitized, mostly fictitious, good word about the early 20th century scam artist. If you remember anything about Hill, know that his most famous book, Think and Grow Rich, was a direct inspiration for Norman Vincent Peale and his self-help tome, The Power of Positive Thinking. Mm -hmm. Peel, of course, was the childhood pastor and guru of the 45th President of the United States. Born in Wise, Virginia in 1883, Hill was known by his first name, Oliver, until he wore out all goodwill under that name and switched to his more bombastic middle name in 1908. By then, he had already sold several short stories and articles, had had a marriage annulled at the age of 15, covered up (laughs) his... yeah. Apparently, she told him she was pregnant... They got married when he was fifteen, and then a few months later, she said, "Oh, wait, the baby isn't yours." So they annulled. He'd also covered up a bizarre robbery slash accidental murder for his employer, and for which wait, accidental murder <laughs> accidental murder isn't that what that- letter? Yeah, no, it was just this accidental murder. But it was just a black bellboy, so nobody cared. Oh, yeah, okay. But covering this up got him promoted to manager at his employer's coal mine. And then there's a five-year gap where he may have been writing and or may have been working in a lumberyard. This is all before he's the age of 23. We do know that he got married for a second time during this period, and he and his wife Ethel had a daughter, the 1995 hagiography hey of Hill removes these first two marriages from his timeline. He quickly shipped said wife and daughter back to his father-in-law and spent enough time in brothels that it was remarked upon by his business associates. <laughs> and this being the early 20th century, that's got to be a lot. <laughs> Around 1905, he kidnapped his daughter and refused to return her, swearing he was going to leave the country with her. If I didn't know any better, I would swear that L. Ron Hubbard used Napoleon Hill as a roadmap for his own life. The similarities just keep piling up from here. So in 1908, Ethel had grown sick of Hill's violent outbursts and extracurricular activities and kidnapping,
2: and...
0: (laughs) (laughs) I grow sick of your kidnapping. (laughs) So she sued him for divorce. He was also arrested at this time for passing bad checks and pumping and dumping wood from the lumberyard in cash only, please. No wonder he changed his name. He also set out from where he'd settled in Alabama to Washington, D.C. Nothing good can happen from here. Mm -hmm. By 1919, Hill would sweep this all under the rug, saying that he had spent 1908 learning at the feet of Andrew Carnegie, who was then the richest man in the world. Together, according to Hill, they wrote a book that Hill published in 1948 with the title, Think Your Way to Wealth. You can find it in print today by the Napoleon Hill Foundation as Napoleon Hill's The Wisdom of Andrew Carnegie as Told to Napoleon Hill.
1: (laughs) (laughs)
2: That's some some Joseph Smith stuff right there. I
0: wish I was making this up. Oh, he does get involved with the Mormons later. Of
2: course, of (laughs) course he does. Match made in heaven.
0: In reality, of course, there is no evidence for, and plenty of evidence against, the idea that Carnegie and Hill ever met. As I had said before, Hill never mentioned this mentorship until 1919, after Carnegie had conveniently died. Of course. That was a pattern for Hill. He also claimed at various points in his life to have been an advisor to two presidents, Woodrow Wilson and Franklin Roosevelt. Did he claim this after both of them had died? Sort of. After he supposedly met with Carnegie, but in reality spent a year running from his warrants, Hill opened up a college in the shiny new world of automobile construction. In reality, he just got people to pay him so he could farm them out as free labor to the Carter Automobile
1: Corporation. Oh no! Oh no! This is a vocational school where you learn how to build automobiles. (laughs) Yep. By providing free labor to build automobiles. While running this college, he met Florence Horner,
0: who was a high school student from a wealthy family. She would become his third wife, and her father would become Hill's bankroll. Ooh, Mm -hmm. good deal. By 1912, Carter Auto had filed for bankruptcy, and Hill's students were suing him. They weren't making the promised money building cars for anyone else because they didn't learn anything. And the entry questionnaires for the college were mostly about how much money they could pay. They were also offered $3 per head for anyone else that they brought in, in a pyramid-shaped recruitment drive. (laughs) Napoleon dumped his new wife and their two children with her family, borrowed four grand from her father, and fled to Chicago, where he started passing himself off as a lawyer. Just by printing off some letterhead that said he was a lawyer. He convinced some partners to start a candy-making business and a hotel, but he was forced out of both businesses fairly quickly. Hill had found his calling, though. He started another school, this one to teach the principles of success
1: and (laughs) self-confidence. <laughs> what are you, you studying? I'm beautiful. studying success. So, <laughs> like no, a business no. school? No, no, no. Success. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. How to be good in business without yeah. even trying. It's I'm all in the
2: inflection.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so, mostly his students were tasked with writing letters to the papers touting Hill in a run for Congress. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so brazen. In 1917, Hill swore he was going to sue the Illinois Central Railroad because the lighting in their passenger cars was harming his eyesight. No record of this lawsuit actually exists. His school was going well, though. Well, it was less of a school and more of a stock-selling scheme in a school. He had established the school with a capital valuation of $100,000, divided into 10,000 shares. He gave himself 51% of the stock and was selling shares to his students at $10 per share. The only problem was that the valuation was bunk. As the Assistant Attorney General of Illinois, Raymond Pruitt, told the Chicago Daily Tribune, investigation reveals that the physical properties and other assets of the Institute appear insufficient to warrant the $100,000 capitalization placed upon it. With just a few dozen desks, a mimeograph and printing supplies, the school would be liberally appraised at $1,200. <laughs>
1: Whoops. Well... To be fair, that's how every tech company is evaluated these days, so eh. So he was an innovator. Yes, he was indeed.
2: <laughs> a disruptor.
1: <laughs> oh, disruptor. a disruptor. Yes. Disrupting the staid old school model. <laughs> yeah.
2: Also, Jem got his nihilism in there, so we're
0: all good. Hill was charged under Illinois' blue sky laws. The blue sky is your... The flim flam laws. You're trying to sell people a piece of blue sky. Ah.
1: Oh, I just... as soon as soon you As soon as you say blue sky, I just hear... Brent Spiner singing Irving Berlin. Under these blue sky laws, Napoleon Hill posted bond, most likely with his
0: father-in-law's money, big surprise, and the charges didn't seem to stick. He was off to his next con. Hill's biography glosses over this, of course. Remember how he said he was an advisor to President Wilson? Yeah, that's what he was doing instead of actually being charged under blue sky laws. He was a pro bono consultant to the president. Of course, Wilson had offered him a salary. But Hill would not hear about taking money from his country in a time of war. Mm Mm-hmm. Sure, Jan. He even claimed to help with negotiating Germany's surrender during the Great War. Oh, I'm sure he did. To quote the great man himself, I was sitting in President Wilson's office as he read the decoded message from them. His face turned white as snow. When he finished reading, he handed the documents to me and left the room. He was gone for about 15 minutes. When he (coughs) returned he handed me a couple of sheets of paper on which he had written his reply to the Germans, which ended with three questions related to the terms of the armistice. After I read his reply, he asked if I had any suggestions to add to it. I said, yes, Mr. President, I would suggest a fourth question. I would ask whether the request for an armistice had been made on behalf of the German people or of the German warlords. Of course, exclaimed the President, for that would put them on notice to get
1: rid of their Kaiser before they can get an armistice. And it did just that. Oh yeah. Okay. Okay. Wait. Sure. So he's claiming responsibility for the Weimar Republic, then? Yeah. Well, that didn't turn out super well. <laughs> Shh. Not that the Kaiser was any better. I mean, no. let's be honest. But let's not get
0: into. Yeah. He, it gets worse. He he deals with World War II as well. Don't you worry? Oh, good. Yeah. But any records of Napoleon Hill working with or for President Wilson were conveniently destroyed in a fire years later. <laughs> There's so much more, we haven't even gotten to his biggest scams yet. This is like a gem-sized segment. (laughs) We've gotten used to
2: filling a gap. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So Hill was a big proponent of the Golden Rule. He even wrote a magazine about it, called Napoleon Hill's Golden Rule. (laughs) (laughs) So, in this magazine, he taught people how to use the Golden Rule, which the normal Golden
1: Rule is... Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, or conversely, the better version is don't do unto others as you would not have them do unto you.
3: Yep. We have a whole poster in our church of like 20 different ways the golden rule is spelled out in different cultures. Mm-hmm.
0: Do any of them use it as a weapon? Because that's what Hill was saying. <laughs> you can use it as a weapon, because that makes people indebted to you. Oh, God. Do unto other people, and they will do for you.
1: Oh. Uh, huh. Oh, that's...
2: <laughs> I did for you, therefore you owe me. <laughs> yep. Oh, that's wow. not kind. You're right. One other things. Yes.
0: Yeah. <laughs> So he kept traveling as he wrote this magazine. It kept him ahead of his creditors. He also came up with an advertising scheme to bestow awards on people most famously Thomas Edison, who reportedly thrust the little statue back at Hill after they posed for a very awkward photo together. This photo with Edison is the only proof that he has of any claims to have met with all these famous men. I'm going to gloss over the most notorious parts of the 1920s, where Hill was supposedly involved with Donald Mellet, an Ohio newspaperman who wrote articles taking down corrupt politicians and members of the KKK. Mellet was assassinated in 1926. Hill claimed that car trouble was the only thing that saved him from the same fate on the same day. Hill laid low until 1928, hiding out from either corrupt officials or Klan members. Hill and Mallet had worked together on a seven-volume book about success, and Hill was determined to get it published. He took it to Connecticut to Andrew Pelton, a publisher with a love for the new self-help movements. Hill's book borrowed heavily from the New Thought movement, and though it was by all accounts badly written, the first volume sold rather well. For once, Hill was actually making legitimate money. Wasn't enough to cover the lavish spending on cars and estates, mind you, and Black Tuesday hit him hard, no matter what he boasted. The estate was foreclosed upon, and the plans for a university-sized school of success
1: went with it.
2: University-sized yeah.
1: school. He, he would be the, the dean of the faculty of success. Uh... So you can't keep a good crook down. Hill next went
0: into the movie business and partnered with some Latter-day Saints to produce a short film based on the book of Mormonism.
2: Yeah! Yay!
0: There is a print of this movie that is kept in the Brigham Young University vaults. So that actually exists. Okay. Great. Allegedly. It's right next to the Salamander letter. He'll claim that FDR came calling next and that he helped, pro bono of course, put together the New Deal. (laughs) He even said he coined the phrase, we have nothing to fear, but fear itself.
2: Of course he did. This guy is amazing, man.
0: You know who else thought he was amazing? His wife, Florence. She filed for divorce in 1935. With her and their three sons went Napoleon's bankroll. Wait, was that his fifth wife? That was the third wife. Third, yeah. Oh, okay. He did have five altogether. Oh, boy. When did he have time to make three sons with her? He dumped her back at her father's, (laughs) and he would visit once in a while, knock her up to keep her quiet, and then leave again. So shortly after Florence left him, Hill, 53, met and married Rosalie Beeland, who was 29. Any sense that can be made from Napoleon Hill's best-known work, Think and Grow Rich, can be attributed to Rosa. She took his notes and turned them into a coherent, well, as much as possible, self-help book with major popular appeal. People in the grips of the Great Depression wanted to cling to anything that seemed to take them out of their poverty. Copies flew off the shelves, and Hill had signed all of the royalties over to Rosa to keep them from his ex-wife and children. The Hills spent more than they made. They even came up with an idea to adopt 15 children and to give them a perfect upbringing.
2: 15? That's a lot
0: of children. They adopted two children, but the scheme was quickly abandoned. One girl went back to her mother, who was the hill's housekeeper. Then the fate of the other child is unknown. So they didn't so much adopt children as steal them. (laughs) Yeah. Well, now comes the weird stuff. (laughs) Wait, what? (laughs) Well, now we get into the cult. Oh, good. The Royal Fraternity of the Master Metaphysicians was founded by by James B. Schaefer and, by the 1930s, had, they claimed, about 10,000 followers. They relied heavily on the idea that you can imagine something, you could make it real. Does it sound familiar? Mm -hmm. A little bit. The Bible for this society was Hill's book, Think and Grow Rich. In 1939, the master metaphysicians had purchased the Vanderbilt estate and announced that they would raise an immortal person. Did you know that our brains have the ability to make us immortal? I'm listening. If they are fed a vegetarian diet and think only good thoughts. no, oh, I'm out. Yeah, I was like, I'm halfway there.
3: I'm totally screwed. Yeah.
0: They adopted a baby girl named Jean and attempted to raise her to be immortal. Hill participated in a lot of the publicity, but advised Schaefer about some investments and spoiled the deal. Schaefer went to prison for fraud and eventually died by his own hand. Baby Jean had been returned safely to her mother before she was three years old. By all accounts, she's still alive. But again, she's lost to history. Mm -hmm. Good for her.
2: (laughs) Yeah, she's probably somewhere out there. She's living a normal life with any luck. (laughs) Yeah,
0: Rosa Lee, that's Hill's wife, had grown tired of him and divorced him in the early 1940s. He published another book, Mental Dynamite. (laughs) But without Rosa, to edit his rambling, it was a flop. This didn't stop Hill from claiming that Gandhi had ordered copies of his books. Of course. (laughs) Gandhi had been shown his books and was so impressed he
1: ordered copies. I don't know when he found the time. I don't know, I hear mental dynamite and I just think of Phineas Gage. Yep.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, I didn't damn. until you said that. <laughs> That's awful! Come on! Hill married again to another trust fund shortly after Rosa left him. He'll toured, doing success speeches, and made his claims of being an advisor to presidents. Since his ideas included nuking the U.S.'s enemies, it's a good thing he wasn't. Hill partnered with Clement Stone, who was another huckster, to produce more self-help books and magazines and records, but after a few years of grifting those around the country, the deal and their partnership fell apart. Stone and Hill helped Norman Vincent Peale to write his Power of Positive Thinking in 1952, and that's when the industry took off flying. However, it didn't work for Napoleon. Napoleon Hill died penniless in 1970. He's largely forgotten today, but his legacy does live on in the Napoleon Hill Foundation, which, after he founded it in 1963, now studies his books like a religion. His legacy also lives on in the corrupt self-help industry. His work has inspired several others, like The Secret, and self-professed gurus like Deepak Chopra and Tony Robbins. I'm fairly sure that Napoleon would be proud, and would be showing up to ask for his royalty check at any moment.
2: (laughs) So many scams.
1: Oh,
0: so Mm -hmm. much
3: a long life of ripping people off yeah
1: Yeah, like it is an impressive string of
0: scams oh there was more this was edited for content
2: it's just like if you could only channel that and put it into something constructive you obviously can do things like you're quite (laughs) clever Mm -hmm. and like you have good skills could
0: you do it without just draining other people like you could yeah. It seems to be an M.O. for con artists and the like. They drift around to all these little jobs, have these ideas, and have a couple of booms and busts, and their trajectory is generally the same. As yeah. A- yeah, Ashman's going to tell us about that with the granddaddy of all flim-flam artists. <laughs> the anti-humbug himself, P.T. Barnum.
3: All right, so I decided to do a relatively well-known flim-flam artist, and reading about P.T. Barnum's life was a real roller coaster. <laughs> uh, he did some like genuinely cool and good things. He was an anti slavery advocate and a politician later on in his life. He founded and paid for a hospital that's still running, as far as I can tell. And he was one of the most widely published people alive in his day. But he also did some extraordinarily shitty things. <laughs> Recently, a movie came out called The Greatest Showman that uh, purported to tell his kind of life story. It was who heavily edited. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, very entertaining movie. Yeah, um, I hear
1: they cut out the part where he had the adamantium claws.
3: <laughs> so I didn't know a ton about his life before I looked into it. Just what I had sort of gotten from popular culture. And so I was surprised mostly by how much the movie sort of smushed his whole life story into, like, four or five years instead of, you know...
1: Yeah, that's the way based on a true story works. Of
3: course, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. he didn't want to wear
0: the old age makeup.
3: (laughs) (laughs) So he got his start running a lottery in Connecticut, which was a thing that you could do back in the day. You could just start a lottery and sell tickets for it and uh, make a crap ton of money. Uh, But then lotteries got outlawed in Connecticut, and so he moved to New York. He started out as an entertainer uh, in a variety troupe called Barnum's Grand Scientific and Musical (laughs) Theatre.
1: Sounds like my kind (laughs) of (laughs) place.
3: There are some pretty amazing names in here. And then uh, shortly after, purchased Scudder's American Museum, which he renamed, and then used to promote hoaxes and human curiosities. So, one of the first things that he did, sort of his entry into the world of being a showman, was one of the worst things he did. So, slavery was not legal in New York or Connecticut at the time, but there was a loophole where instead of straight up buying a slave, you could lease a slave. So, he leased this woman. Her name was Joyce Heth, and she was enslaved, and he had to borrow $500. The price for a year was $1,000. So we borrowed half of it um, and then started exhibiting her, telling people that she had been George Washington's nurse and was 161 years old. So this was the story that he was telling people, and he would um, charge people admission to a show where she would tell stories about George Washington as a baby, and how she had dressed him in his first clothes, and she would sing a hymn. And she was, like, mostly paralyzed. She had the use of one arm, and she could speak, and that was pretty much it. And so he was getting about $1,500 a week from profits of uh from this show which is a ridiculous amount of money back in the day but at least a human for a thousand a year so yeah (laughs) worse than that when she did pass away he was having her work for like 10 to 12 hours a day at the time of her death and then when she died he hosted a live autopsy of her body he charged 50 cents a person to see the autopsy and revealed that she was probably only half of her purported age of 161. And apparently first he tried to claim that this was actually a different person and the real one had run away or possibly she was never even human to begin with, but maybe some sort of automaton. There were all kinds of stories around this. He just kept making up a new one every week, it sounded (laughs) like. (laughs) So this kind of gave him the capital and the idea that people really enjoyed seeing these kinds of things, and would pay for it handsomely. Uh, so this is where he really got his start. So then he he purchased the Grand Scientific and Musical Theatre. However, a year into that venture, the Panic of 1837 occurred. And so for the next five to seven-ish years, it was like a really bad recession. Wages were going down. Everything was not great. So it was a bad time to have a disco. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> But he continued to accumulate various oddities, including people. So there are people like uh, General Tom Thumb, who was a child, and also he's referred to as a dwarf often, Or uh, and, but his wife is referred to as a little person. He, uh, as far as we can tell, did not have achondroplasia. So I'm not 100 percent sure what the not correct all terminology people have
2: like true the
3: so. yeah so like x-rays weren't discovered until like 12 years after he died so no one is actually sure but his growth followed a very odd pattern like, very small stature yeah so he grew he grew normally until he was six months old which is pretty typical yeah. but then in the next year of his life he only grew an inch hmm. and then by the time he was 21 years old he was about 89 centimeters tall two feet 11 inches.
0: It's very um,
3: so he was hired by Barnum, who was apparently a distant relative of his, to impersonate celebrities and uh, sort of put on a show. And he was very, very young when he started, like five years old. And he would impersonate uh, Cupid and Napoleon and ride around on a horse and do all kinds of different spectacles. And apparently he was just like very naturally talented at At the whole showmanship thing.
1: Oh, kids are very enthusiastic about that stuff.
3: Yeah. (laughs) Sometimes, if they want to be. And apparently, Tom Thumb, whose real name was Charles Sherwood Stratton, he felt that he was treated very well and, you know, had a pretty good life doing this. But there were other folks who were involved in these shows who were not very well treated at all. So Barnum would exhibit... Exotic women from far off lands, or yeah. but he would also do things like hire women from Guatemala to say that they were ancient Aztec tribes, and you know there was a lot of of othering and racist bulk involved in in the show. Yeah, um, more like the standard exoticism. Of course, yeah, yeah. which is kind of the exact opposite message of the movie. (laughs) The movie is very much about, like, everyone is worth the same, and our oddities make us awesome, and that is kind of not how Barnum lived his actual life, at least (laughs) up until this point. He also began exhibiting things like the Fiji Mermaid. That's my favorite. <laughs> <out>. <laughs> so this was the sort of upper half of a, a monkey of some sort, sewn onto the bottom half of a fish. Mm-hmm. Uh, there have been many replicas of this thing sold all over the world. It is pretty wild looking. I think I've seen one of them. Uh, I used to be super into like the Ripley's Believe It or Not Mm -hmm, stuff. mm -hmm. I love that stuff. And so when we were in Vegas when I was a kid, we went to the the Ripley's Believe Mm -hmm. It or Not Museum. Basically, they owe their existence to to Barnum and and folks like him.
0: Yeah. They have one in the Ripley's Museum in Niagara on the Lake as well. Oh, I didn't know there was one there. Yeah. Well, there was in the 90s when I went. Yeah, (laughs) it's still there. Okay.
3: (laughs) So I thought it was interesting. There was a movie made in 1932, Todd Browning's Magnificent Freaks. <laughs> it was cast with several people who were actual former Barnum employees. Uh, but in this movie, he apparently shocked audiences by portraying them as sympathetic humans rather than victims or monsters. So surprisingly, Barnum was kind of a crusader against tricking people. Yeah. <laughs> um, he believed that it was okay to fool people. So for example, the the mermaid and stuff like that. It was fine if you gave people misleading information to get them in the door as long as they got value for their money. And so he was fine with his version of bullshit, but he was very emphatically not okay with like mediums and psychics, and and this was all very popular at this time. And so he would speak out against it, and he even wrote a book about how to spot various kinds of of flim-flam, and humbug, (laughs) as he called them. It was such a weird juxtaposition to see him fighting against this kind of stuff while being basically
1: the forefather of so much of it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> not against the Fox Sisters?
1: I don't remember. I don't know. It is very similar to magicians, though, who are big in the skeptical movement, because you have people who are trained to fool people. Like mm-hmm. Barnum, obviously specialized in flim flam himself, but he like has his line that he's not going to cross. Right? So does James um, Randi. <laughs> well, insert yeah. eye roll here. So he has the specialty in fooling people, but I guess. You know, you see a lot of magicians in the in the skeptical movement too. I don't know. That seems that seems like a, a precursor to that almost.
3: Yeah, I guess I feel like magicians will tell you that all of their stuff
1: is real, but nobody believes that they believe it. That may be a more modern thing though. Like yeah. I, I I feel like today nobody except like a small child will believe that magicians are real. But I don't know how how that was in the eighteen hundreds. Mm-hmm.
3: I don't know. I don't know either.
1: But like Houdini of course was a crusader against mm-hmm. séances.
0: Really? Jack. I thought he was super into séances. No, no. Mm-mm. Well he no. he was until he wasn't. He had a hard line that they were trying to talk to his mother or something. Mm, okay.
1: Well and he also had like a pact with his wife uh saying, you know, like if, right. you, you know, you'll know it's me if, Yeah, I guess
3: know. that's where I'm yeah. I'm remembering
1: that from. But no, he was a hardliner, and actually, like, he was friends, I believe, with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, and they butted heads over, over that particular focus. thing. Yeah.
3: <laughs> He had an extraordinary number of large fires that destroyed his collections over the years. familiar. <laughs> year. Things
2: just kept burning down on him. These con artists are really, really bad with fire safety. <laughs>
1: How well were, were these collections insured? See,
3: that doesn't seem to have been, like, no. the motive. Like, it was, I guess his stuff was just, like, covered in... Asbestos?
2: Well, no, it was <laughs> uh, formaldehyde
3: and yeah. kept okay. going up because,
1: you know, all those preserved fish and monkeys.
2: Well, yeah. Yeah, you and know fish monkeys. Yeah, so fish monkeys don't stay good yeah. forever. And so. right, you,
1: you, you don't have electric lighting in his day, so yeah. like it's all like lamps and stuff. So. Yeah,
3: one of the things that was quite accurately portrayed in the movie was uh, the tour of uh, Jenny Lind. And so once he had become quite successful, especially with General Tom Thumb, he was invited to England and gave shows for, or at least was able to meet the Queen with General Tom Thumb. And he heard about this Jenny Lind, who is a really popular Swedish soprano. And he talked her into coming to the States and doing 150 shows across the States for $1,000 a show. This is what he promised her. (laughs) And she was sort of like this paragon of virtue and uh, he was able to raise the money because she demanded the fee in advance if she was going to do this. Good girl. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so he was able to raise the money by for various um, like groups that thought that her morality would impact the American public positively. Oh. <laughs> and so her motivation was that she wanted to raise money for her charities like various um, schools in Sweden that were supporting children who were too poor to afford to go to Regular school, or whatever. So, once she got to the States and realized how ridiculously good he was at promoting things and how much money he was going to make off of this, um, she demanded a change in the contract. And she would get her $1,000 a show, and she would also get any ticket money that was remaining after he took his $5,500 a show management fee.
1: Oh boy. (laughs)
3: So she ended up making a ton of money. He made a ridiculous amount of money. Mm -hmm. And she was permitted to break the contract after either 60 or 100 shows if she wanted to. And she ended up doing that after, like, 97 or something. But they, like, parted amicably. And she ended up touring the rest of the states on her own without his management and, and doing quite well. But So that gave him... A uh, lot of money to work with, and he did not spend it well.
2: <laughs> I generally don't. That's been kind of a theme here. So many fish monkeys, right? <laughs>
3: well, he started just buying museums. Okay. <laughs> so he went. Uh, he went around buying things. Uh, he. Bought, uh, yeah, another museum.
1: Notable was... profit centers.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it was a collection of collections. It was just
3: easier. And just investing money in, in various things. After a series of very bad investments, um, he was pretty broke again.
1: 500000 That's that's the equivalent today of millions.
0: Yeah. A metric butt ton <laughs> is what we're looking at here. Dump trucks full of money. <laughs> yeah, so a tour which earned him a
3: profit of more than $500,000. Cool. And I think she made, like, 250 grand, so. That is a lot Good of money. Good job. Hopefully many children got to go to school because of it.
0: Go mm-hmm. oh, Jenny Lind. <laughs> but there was no forced romance plot like they had in that Greatest Showman Not movie.
3: that I could tell, no. no. It wasn't really a, a thing. She was, again, very much, like, her morality and her virtue was a big part of her appeal. Right. I guess. <laughs> okay, so he we went on a speaking tour. Talking about how uh, you shouldn't drink. And that helped him to become solvent again. He also started touring with Tom Thumbs. So Charles Stratton was at this point sort of his own thing. He was doing his own thing. But he had a lot more money than Barnum when Barnum went broke. And so he offered to go on tour with him and sort of help him out. Uh, And the same thing with the the Siamese twins, Chang Chang and Eng. Eng. They had split from the show quite a while ago after becoming very popular with his show, and they wanted to help him out after, you know, after he got broke. So, like, I guess it says something about him that these people that he had worked with were really wanting to help him out when he was down on his luck. Like, he he seems to have been quite well-liked by the people who worked for him.
2: I mean... Yeah, he's down. They're up. They have no reason to go and help him other than liking him. Yeah, like at this the history point, right
3: between them. Yeah, yeah. So I just I found that surprising. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, he seems like the kind of guy who would not be very nice to the little people <laughs> in his life. Oh, fun not intended. Oh, <laughs> so yeah. Tour of temperance speaking, and then so once he was back on his feet, he became a politician. <laughs> and he he went into politics And there are some, some good quotes from him I am a showman by profession And all the gilding shall make nothing else of me uh, And this is While he was Running for office, <laughs> <laughs> so he wasn't trying to hide that part. So once he was a politician, he became very outwardly like anti-slavery. He gave speeches about how all people are the same and all people have immortal souls, and no matter what the outside looks like, you should treat the person well. And he poured tons of money into his uh, into his town of Bridgeport, Connecticut. So like, this is where he founded Bridgeport Hospital. And he was the first president of the hospital. It wasn't until he was 60 years old that he got into the circus business, which
2: I did not know. Good lord. (laughs) Right? Like,
3: that's that's how we remember it.
2: He was what? He was
3: 60 years old.
2: Before he was in the circus. Before he got into the wow. circus business. yeah. Huh.
3: And so a lot of stuff had happened to him at this point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> one of the creatures that he had in his museums was an elephant named Jumbo. And Jumbo was sort of the big draw to his three ring circus. And it, before this point, no one had ever done a three ring circus before. Three different acts happening at the same time. Whoa. Super, super fancy. And so Jumbo was in there. He, he sort of had the same variety of acts and shows and a menagerie and yada yada that he had had in his museums, except now it traveled around. He bought his own train in order to transport all of this crap across the country, hmm. which was the first time anybody had ever purchased a private train, for example. Yes! Yeah. <laughs> Neat! I, like, I feel like I'm leaving out so much, because again, like your guy, there was just so many things that he yeah. did. One of the things that I did not know was that he wrote a an autobiography of himself, In... What would be weird if you wrote one about someone else?
1: (laughs) While those happen. (laughs) (laughs) That's how most autobiographies (laughs) are written.
3: (laughs) So Barnum wrote an autobiography... Uh, Life of P.T. Barnum in 1854. This was actually one of the best methods that he had to promote himself. Um, <laughs> he gave up his copyright so that other printers could sell inexpensive editions. And at the end of the 19th century, the number of copies printed was second
1: only to the New Testament in North America. Wow! <laughs> oh boy, that's such a that's such a fascinating idea to just put your own autobiography in the public domain to sell more circus. <laughs> yeah,
2: it's pretty
3: wild. So that was 1854, and he, trying to find when he actually went into the circus, in 1870. So it was quite a while before he got into the circus thing that he had published this thing. He also published um, the book The Humbugs of the World in 1865, which was that book about, like, recognizing different kinds of of stuff. Um, And then he published one that I didn't read anything about, just called The Art of Money Getting in
1: 1880. Yeah. It's a book about
2: success. (laughs) Step one, write an autobiography. Step two, release in the public domain.
1: (laughs) Step three, profit. (laughs) Step one, write a book about success. Step two, people buy it.
3: It's like a really uh, successful model these days it seems like yep. the, the self-help book market is so big. Thanks Napoleon Hill. He did a lot of things. He promoted a lot of hoaxes. There is actually no evidence to the notion that he coined the phrase there's a sucker born every minute.
1: Mm-hmm. It's
3: widely c- credited to him, but we we don't have any evidence that, that actually happened. The people who worked for him seemed to mostly like him, but he was also a shitty shitty person in many many ways. And I still recommend going to see the movie. It has some really catchy music.
1: (laughs) I've come to believe that people, they aren't good or bad. They're good and bad. And Mm -hmm. the good doesn't cancel out the bad. And the bad doesn't cancel out the good. You know, it's not like some sort of karmic balance scale. Mm-hmm. You know, they just coexist, right? All your faves are problematic.
3: <laughs> well, and he seemed to be just, like, really good at capitalism. <laughs>
0: <laughs> He's an American saint. Yeah.
3: <laughs> he figured it out at an early age with the lottery thing and just kind of went with it. Like, he had so many jobs. So many.
0: Again, that's what I was saying. Is they All these hucksters seem to have this... Like, jump from scam to scam to scam or job to job to job and then just keep going for the bigger score. Mm -hmm.
2: Well, they have a remarkable resilience to keep going, Mm -hmm. to keep trying it again. Like, I kind of wonder if it's a bit of that like adrenaline addiction tendency, right? Like, it's kind of like gambling, it's just like looking for the next big payout, right? But it's pretty impressive that so many of these people hit rock bottom. And continued on and skyrocketed again, you know? Like, that's something. It is quite something, these stories. Just their highs Mm -hmm. are incredible and their lows are low, but they go back up again.
0: I couldn't do it. I get
2: seasick. Yeah! (laughs) Yeah, it just, it all sounds so exhausting and uncomfortable and just... This is why we aren't rich. <laughs> yes, <laughs>
3: <laughs> Barnum just owned business after business after business. He started with a general store, a book auctioning trade, real estate speculation, the lottery network. He also got into uh, like a bunch of newspapers, and at one point he was so successful at promoting himself because he had twenty nine journalists that he just like owned their careers. and so he was able to get them to print whatever he wanted but he also was prosecuted like under libel laws for basically talking shit about church elders (laughs) so he was like super liberal in his day and like joined the universalists and stuff he's just all over
1: the place this guy that's fascinating
0: Mm -hmm. thank you for indulging me on this topic i know i don't host very often but this one Seemed really fun. Yeah, it was really fun.
3: Yeah.
1: I think we could easily make this a yearly feature. Yeah.
0: <laughs> pick a
3: new flim-flam. There's so many.
1: So next month, we're going to be talking about debunked psychological studies. Famous psychological studies that you've heard about that turned out to be wrong. Oh,
3: well, we have to pick a famous one. We can't well, all good. pick the marshmallow test, guys, okay?
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right. Look forward to it. Night, everyone. Good night. Good night.
1: Good night. You've been listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. If you have any questions or comments, or you'd like to suggest a topic for the show, send us an email at podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. If you want to show your support, give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter or Facebook, or just share the show with a friend. Our music is produced by the very talented Ian James. And this episode was edited by Lauren Bailey.
0: Don't
1: talk to me about life. Oh, I love that. Hmm. Hmm. Oh. Hmm. Um. <laughs> you, you gotta cut those noises out. Yeah, I no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm just a big Matt Frewer fan. Like, uh, oh, he was so good as Moloch. It's one of the highlights of the... Uh, let's not talk about, uh, Watchmen. Um, I think yeah. the Russian mob. Let's watch
3: the horsey one
1: again. Eastern.
3: The horsey one?
1: Yes. Yeah, Viggo Mortensen was in Eastern Promises. Okay, I have seen both. I saw them both, like, the same year. And he was also in History of Violence. Yeah. Yeah, I was right. I knew he was and in they, History of Violence. And I believe both of those films feature naked fights in... Yes. ...in, uh, men's restrooms. <laughs> yeah, and... History. Oh, of... we've
2: seen one of those movies, haven't yeah, we? Yeah, you, you
1: got to see Viggo Mortensen's scrotum. <laughs> and History These of Violence also... Right? Yeah.
2: Just the scrotum now? Like...
1: Yeah. Uh, oh, it, it was shot tastefully from behind.
0: <laughs>
2: that would be so weird if there was nothing else but the scrotum. Like, what angle are you using? And why is there so much <laughs> zoom? <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: it's, not, it's not centered in the frame exactly, but...
0: He dumped her back at her father's and he would poke his head in every once in a while knock her out. That's (laughs) horrible. No. Okay. So